The Civilizations of the Ancient Near East The transition from the lifestyle of the hunter-gatherers to that of agriculture was one of the most significant turning points in human history. The cultivation of crops and the domestication of animals meant security of food, settlement in one place, and the chance to develop sophisticated social and cultural patterns, and it led to the building of the earliest cities. We may think of agriculture and urban development as being opposed to each other, but in ancient times cities became viable because they could be supplied by an agricultural hinterland. This is still the case, although now that hinterland is global instead of local. The birth of the cities also tells us something profound about political and social power, that the old tribal leaders became kings. The warlord who had protected the farming people in their village now became the lawlord and the landlord, and he became the key figure in the religion of the city or the state. In Egypt, the king was regarded as a god, while in Mesopotamia he was the representative of the gods, the intermediary between the divine and human realms. In return, the king exacted from his people obedience, riches, and surplus food. The city, centered on the temple and the palace, became a container of culture, of religion, laws, ideas, literature, wealth, and food. In theory, it also offered security, but in reality these ancient cities were all too often at war with each other. This background explains a good deal about the art of the ancient Near East. In Egypt, all aspects of visual art— painting, sculpture, and architecture, show a strong, instantly recognizable style which remained rigid and conservative for an immensely long period precisely because it was official art, fulfilling a clear, almost ritualized function in the hierarchical life of the state. Art centered on the king and the gods, and the Egyptians' obsessive concern with the afterlife reinforced the sense that this world is subject to a cosmic order dominated by those two powers. Much of the surviving art is tomb art, painted or carved. The most familiar of all images from Egyptian art are probably the illustrations for the so-called Book of the Dead, which were painted on coffins or on papyrus scrolls. The Book of the Dead was nothing less than a guidebook to the afterlife, showing what awaited the soul as it passed from this world into the next life. It was conveyed through the underworld by guardian spirits, judged by the gods, and proceeded to bliss or damnation. In these pictures we see the gods with their animal heads, jackal, ibis, raven, which must surely be an inheritance from prehistoric art, from the idea that mankind lives in some form of symbiosis with the animals. These and other painted figures seem to have a close connection with carved relief art, for they are always shown in profile and always have an immobile, marmorial quality, as those stone figures were being portrayed, not living beings. There is the characteristic awkwardness of pose, with the body facing the viewer while the head and feet are turned sideways. The funerary sculptures, sometimes carved in very hard stones such as diorite, are technically impressive, but lacking in vitality. This was a hieratic art, limited in subject matter and treatment, which was designed for eternity, and this is indeed what it achieved. Two of the most famous, archetypal works of Egyptian art, 
the coffin lid of Tutankhamun and the monumental sculptures of Abu Simbel, share this same impersonal grandeur. There are hints that other styles of art may have existed. For example, the delightful little hunting scene of Tutankhamun, painted as a miniature on a wooden chest. But survivals of this kind are very rare. The great containers of this funerary art were, of course, the pyramids, the earliest works of monumental public art, in which science, engineering skill, and agonizing physical labor were poured into creating massive, elemental works of stone. The pyramids prefigured the cathedrals of medieval Europe. We may well entertain a suspicion that this religion and the art that flowed from it were the province of a social elite, imposed on the masses. How else can we explain the tomb robbers who so eagerly broke into and stripped the dead kings of their funerary treasures?